Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, and once again, let me say welcome. Uh, my name is Michael, and I am part of the teaching team here at Christ Church. And, uh, you know, we say that a lot, Christ Church of Orinogo, Christ Church, you see it on the signs coming in. And, uh, you know, today we kind of are thinking about how we figure if we're going to call ourselves Christ Church, it wouldn't be a bad idea to figure out who this Christ person is. And so to that end, what we've been doing really all year long is we've been walking through the life story of Jesus from beginning to end. We started at the beginning and we're going to carry this through until we get to the final moment. In an effort to understand who this person is, we're calling it the gospel. And uh, it is our attempt to clarify for one another who Jesus is. And this series or journey called Gospel today has us in Matthew chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Matthew 8. And as we read this a little bit later on and try to unpack what's happening in this portion of the story, our goal really is to try to raise and hopefully answer what I consider to be, we consider to be, a pretty relevant question. Why should you listen to Jesus? Why should you take his voice as an authority in your life? Why should you do what he says? Anybody else but me get a little bit anxious when you have to rely on somebody else's word, on somebody else's expertise? Like this happens for me mostly when I'm trying to purchase something or when I'm trying to fix something, you know? Like I'm, I'm currently in the market for a grill, so I'm going to all these stores and I'm talking to these salespeople and what's the difference between these grades and that grades and telling me about the quality of steel and all these different things. And they're answering my questions. But if you've been in that moment, are you like me that you're thinking, yeah, I, you're answering my question, but you also want me to buy this thing. So you're probably going to tell me whatever I want to hear. That's why we look up online reviews. We want to get an unbiased voice so that we don't have to rely on one person's word or on one person's expertise. Or when I'm trying to fix something, like you got maybe a leak in your roof, and so you call up a, a roof, and they come check it out, and they're like, well, yeah, the leak is centered right here, but actually there's some structural damage. It's a little bit wider, so you thought it was going to be this, but actually it's going to be this. And you're thinking, like, if you lied to me right now, I would not have any idea <laughs> how to figure out whether you were actually telling the truth. So why should I believe you? Is this happening to anybody else but me? Am I alone in this? I'm not the only skeptical person in the room. Okay, that makes me feel a little better. I think this is why second opinions are a thing in our world, you know? And we have, we have really clarified in no uncertain terms over the past few months, we have, we have challenged you that you should accept Jesus as your divine teacher. That's what we've been saying. As we've looked at the teachings of Jesus together for these past few months, we've been consistently bringing this theme of you should just let his voice, as, the, as God in the flesh, let his voice be the one that actually governs how you do life. That when he says something is true, you accept it as the absolute truth about the way things are. And when he tells us something to do, that you unhesitatingly just put it into practice immediately, that you listen to Jesus and do what he says. This is a big claim. That all people should regard Jesus as the teacher, capital T. This is a huge and dangerous sometimes and potentially offensive claim in our era and probably any other era for that matter. And so I think it's right for us to step back and ask the question, like, why should we trust him? Why should we listen to him, the one we read about in this book? Why? And not us. Not, not Mark and I, whomever, whomever else may come up here and try to articulate the word. Like, that's a different question. And I think Mark does a good job of consistently saying, hey, only listen to us to the extent that we echo him. Only take our voices as relevant to the extent that we, like, reliably transmit what he has said and done. So I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about him. Why should you listen to him? 
And I think this question and giving an answer to it is really the main theme of what's going on in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Let's read the text together. Uh, Go ahead and look at it again. Matthew 8, 1 through 17. There's a couple of stories in here, three to be exact, and then some details at the end. Let's read it all together once, kind of from start to finish, and then we'll back up and unpack it piece by piece. Here's what Matthew writes. Matthew 8, 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, verse five. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. But Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and he said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, people who are supposed to get it, subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits of the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. A lot of stories like this in the Gospels. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John set out to tell the life story of Jesus, there's a lot of healings. And man, some of them really just kind of get you in the feels, you know what I mean? Like if you look at them long enough, you can just picture yourself being these people, and it just kind of captures your heart, and I think that's part of what they do. But what I'd like to do this morning is actually a little bit different. I'm aiming primarily to your mind, at your mind this morning, because actually my goal is, is to give us something of a framework for us to understand what these healing stories are all about. I want to set us up so that anytime we see these things, we understand why they're being told the way they are and what it is they have to teach us. So in an effort to understand these particular stories, let's get a little bit of context. We are in Matthew chapter 8, which follows Matthew chapter 7. We're coming right out of the Sermon on the Mount. One of Jesus' main actual bodies of teachings is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We've been walking through this thing together over the past few months, unpacking some of the things that Jesus tells us to do. The sermon is all about life in God's kingdom, and everybody's invited, but here's how it works. And he tells us to do some pretty intense things. Like, you know, when you're angry with someone, don't harbor that anger and resentment. Don't, like, write them off, but instead go seek peace with them, no matter what they did. And whenever you see somebody who you desire sexually, if that person's not your spouse, then just cut that desire off. Or when you find yourself in a marriage that you don't want to be in anymore, you you find a way to stay anyway. Or when you want to judge, you don't. When you want to worry, you don't. I mean, there's all these big teachings, these major 
somewhat difficult things that Jesus calls us to in this sermon, and it's not like he presents it as a low-stakes offer. It's not like he says, well, I mean, this is my opinion, but there are others' opinions too. You probably ought to check those out and pick the one you like. He doesn't say that. He says to follow me on this narrow path is to walk toward life. And to reject me, which is the popular answer, is actually to walk on a road that leads to death and to live a life that is so unstable it can't, as we often say, weather life's storms. So Jesus presents this as a pretty high stakes offer. And if that wasn't enough, when he finishes dropping all of these teachings on us, Matthew says, and then when Jesus came down the mountain, large crowds followed him. I think he's trying to actually clue us in to something about who Jesus is. I think when Matthew tells us that Jesus came down the mountain, it's supposed to remind us of a time long ago when somebody else came down the mountain. You ever heard of Moses? He goes up on the mountain. He talks to God. He comes down the mountain with two tablets written by the finger of God, the big Ten Commandments that we all have heard of, the ten that Moses brings down and says, here are the laws that God's people are to abide by. Yeah, I think there's a parallel here, but I don't think the parallel is exact because Jesus isn't holding any tablets of stone. Why does he not have tablets of law? Well, because he is the law. That's the claim. Which if you believe that, that's kind of cool. But if you're not quite sure, that's a little bit arrogant. Just to show up saying, hey, just so you know, everybody should probably listen to me. Everybody should probably take what I'm saying and just put it into practice. I mean, why does he deserve such respect? Well, I think these stories are designed to answer that question. Same question fits where we are in our series, The Gospel. When we looked at the life of Jesus, the big long narrative from birth to the ascension, even before the birth to the ascension, we broke it out into these five sections. We have at the very beginning called the beginning, like before his birth, then we had the arrival, and we've been in this long section now called recognition, which is all about kind of figuring out who Jesus is. And we're just about here in a couple weeks to transition to the section we're calling revolution, from recognition to revolution. Now, these words are in the Bible per se, but we've looked at the story as a whole and we feel like they pretty accurately describe what's going on at these points in the stories. So the question now is moving from who is this guy to will you follow him? So will you? Like, do you want a revolution? You ready to sign up? And anytime anybody asks you to be a part of something that is rightly described as a revolution, I think you have not only a right, but an obligation to say, whoa, 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 back up, slow down. Why should I follow you here? These stories answer that question. And here's their answer in one sentence. Here's what I want to say today. Whoever you are, Jesus is willing and able to make you whole. That, I think, is what these stories want to say. Whoever you are, Jesus is willing and able to make you whole. We're going to unpack this piece by piece. Let's start right at the heart of it with Jesus being willing and able. You're familiar with this phrase. It's a phrase that we use periodically, willing and able. We know what it means. Be willing means you're not like hesitant or reluctant to help someone. To be able means that you're not incapable, that you actually can do it. So I can do it and I'm willing to do it. That's what the phrase means. I did some research on this phrase and the first uh, known citation that I could find comes way back in the 1820s. And it's in the context of a war, and they're inviting uh, all who would come and be aides to the soldiers who were wounded. If you could come and help the soldiers who were wounded, we're looking for people who are willing and able. That's what it said. It finds its most technical context in the legal world, where willing and able is a phrase that's used to describe a person who, if you sign a contract, you are capable and you are willing to meet the terms of the contract that you've signed. So that's where the word comes from. Fair enough. I don't know exactly where it originated. We can have our guesses, but I do think with confidence that it's pretty well 
described here finds a pretty good home here in Matthew chapter 8. Let's look again at these three stories. The first one is the story of a leper who approaches Jesus. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, picture it with your eyes, large crowds followed him. A lot of people around. A man with leprosy, which is a skin disease, came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, there's a reason why this leper kneels before Jesus. Now, we maybe see it, and probably rightly so, as a demonstration of respect for Jesus' dignity and authority and power. It's almost like he's treating him like a king. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. But before that, it's first of all an admission that I know I shouldn't be here (laughs) this close to you. I know I'm putting you in danger by being this close to you. I could contaminate you. That's how it worked. You weren't allowed to touch a leper because if you touch them, then their skin disease, which defiles them and makes them unclean and makes it so that they can't go worship God. If you touch them, then you're contaminated too. It's contagious, not only physically, but socially and religiously as well. So he's kneeling because he's like, I know I shouldn't be here. Like, I, I, I can make you look like me, and I know that's bad. There's a reason why this beautiful but broken person comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing... Because if you're a leper living in the first century, then your life is defined by what people are not willing to do, not willing to touch you, not even willing to come near you, usually not even willing to accept you as a normal part of the fabric of society. If you're a leper, like there's a rule. When you walk around where the people are, you got to throw your hands up and say, unclean, unclean, just to make sure everybody knows you're coming so that they can get back far enough away so that they don't become unclean themselves by actually coming into contact with you. This is why lepers lived in a colony out there. But this guy doesn't stay out there. He comes in here to Jesus and asks, if you are willing. And Jesus doesn't turn his back. Jesus doesn't send him away. Jesus doesn't even just heal him with the word like he could have, keeping himself at a safe distance. No, instead he reaches out his hand and for the first time in who knows how long, our friend feels the warmth of another person's skin. I'm willing. And he reached out and touched him and said, be clean. Wait, 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 Jesus, wait, Jesus is contaminated now, right? He touched him. Jesus is contaminated now or not. Because instead of the infection jumping from leper to Lord, the healing touch of Jesus repairs him and restores him. And then he says, go show yourself to the priests in part so that you can be fully restored to the community. And also so that they may know that I am here and I am willing. Yeah, I think the first story pretty well seals the deal. Jesus is willing. His willingness is undeniable. And the second story kind of double checks the power, kind of doubles down really on the ability of Jesus. Let's look at the second story again. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, this is verse 5, a centurion came to him. Now, the centurion is a good man. We know this because Luke, the other gospel writer, also tells this story. And he informs us that this man, though he's a part of the Roman, uh, Roman army, he's, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. Though he's a part of the Roman army, he, he devoted some funding so that the Jews in this region could build a synagogue. He's a good man. Takes care of people, right? He's a good guy. Good leader, too. We know this because he's a centurion. Centurion was a leader of about 100 100 soldiers, give or take, and it was the highest rank in the Roman army that you could rise to on skill alone. 
Like most of the people who were higher than this, they knew somebody in high places. They had an uncle or they had a daddy or they had a friend who got them the position. This is the highest level you could rise to if you were just good at what you do. Centurions were good leaders. These are men who are in the positions they're in, not because they have a friend who did them a favor, but because they're respectable men who you look at and you want to follow. So we're talking about a good man. We're talking about a good leader with a lot of power, but his power had come to its limit. When he looked at his servant who was not doing well, and he couldn't do anything about it. He says, Lord, he comes to Jesus asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Luke, in the other story, draws attention to the fact that this kid's about to die. It's the threat of death that Luke wants us to think about. Matthew draws our attention to the fact that he's just hurting. He's just in a lot of pain. He's suffering. This person that the centurion cares about is suffering terribly. So Jesus says, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion's reply is awesome. Lord, I don't even deserve it. Have you come under my roof? Just say the word and he'll be healed. I know how this works. He says, I'm a man under authority with people under me. I don't have to do things every time. I can just say, go, he goes, come, he comes, do this, he does that. And Jesus is like, wow. Jesus is amazed. There's two times in the gospel when Jesus steps back and says, you just blew my mind. Two times when he's described as being amazed. Once is in Nazareth, his hometown, when he is amazed at their lack of faith. The other time is right here when he is amazed at this guy, this Gentile Roman soldier's faith. And he says, I've not seen this faith. I've not seen something this great, even in Israel. Even among the people who should know, I don't see something like this. This guy recognizes, look at what faith is here. Faith is an absolute confidence in what Jesus is able to do. Centurion says, listen, I know, I get it. I have some power. Then he attributes to Jesus a much more powerful form of the same. Even though he was on the inside. Jesus says, people who are on the inside, people who should know don't have what you have. You're not even an Israelite. And yet you've demonstrated the one thing that means a person gets God's kingdom, faith. Story number two, Jesus, yeah, he's able, just with the word, to take care of the problems. And for good measure, we got a third story. So let's pick up on it, verses 14 and following. Jesus finally comes to where he's going there in Capernaum, Peter's house. He sees Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Now, nobody likes to have a fever, but there's more going on than just, oh, my temperature is rising and I'm coughing a bit. This fever put her down. It's probably a pretty tough lady. This fever put her down. Like, you've had a bad fever. And not only did, like, the fever put her down, like, this was a socially shameful situation in the first century. Some of y'all are hosts with the most or hostesses with the mostesses. Like, you know, if somebody comes into your home and you're supposed to take care of them, you want to take care of them. And if you don't have the means or ability to do so, you don't feel right. Like, multiply that by 10. In the ancient Eastern society, for this woman to not be capable of taking care of the honored guests that are coming to her home, this is a shameful thing. So what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't shame her. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. And just so we know, it's not just a few. It says, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. So come back again. Why should you listen to this Jesus? Why should you allow him to be a person that tells you what is true and how to live your life? Well, it's the same reason you listen to a good doctor when they say it's, it's time for surgery. Same reason you listen to a wonderful teacher when they say, you know what, you... You did this math equation wrong. You need to go back to the start and begin again. It's the same reason you listen to your your wife or your husband when they say, whoever it is in your house, when they say, no, 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 we don't fold the towels like that. We fold the towels like this. Not in halves, but in thirds, you know. (laughs) Okay, I get it. Like, you're in the know. 
you have the willingness and you have the ability. And the one with the, think about this, the one with the willingness and ability to restore life probably deserves the right to tell us how to live. Amen? I guess probably true. So the willingness, is it there? Yeah, check. The ability, is it there? Yeah, check, check. Yeah, he's pretty much the resident expert on these things. He's willing, he's able. But we're leaving it kind of vague so far. Willing and able to do what? So we got to dig down and do a little bit more, cover some more ground. Says, whoever you are, Jesus is willing and able to make you whole. What do you do with the healing stories? Like when you read these accounts of people coming to Jesus with some sort of a physical problem and then Jesus puts them back together again and they walk on their way happy, what do you do with these? Like, what are we supposed to learn or expect in our day or, or think about? And this is where I really want to set you up well to fully hear and enjoy the many stories like this that are coming our way. Because healing stories in the gospel, yeah, sure, they're just really cool stories of powerful acts of compassion that put people back together again. Absolutely. Absolutely. But they're also signs that point to something else. Now, I want to be careful here because I want to make sure you understand, I think that these healings really happened. I'm not saying they're just sort of figurative representations of something else. And I think healings still happen. And so if you have something going on physically for yourself or somebody else, by all means, ask Jesus to heal you. And if you don't feel right about that, come to me. I'll ask Jesus to heal you too. But here's the fact. We don't know if it's going to happen. Like most of the time when we ask for healing, I'd imagine this is probably venture to guess this is true. Most of the time when we ask for physical healing, we don't get the answer that we're looking for. What are we supposed to do with that? And then even in Jesus' time, it feels like he's healing everybody around. Even in his time, you read through the Gospels, you read plenty of times when he didn't heal everybody in Palestine. Sometimes it says he just healed some of them. And what's more, Jesus seems to have a love-hate relationship to these things. Half the time when people come up to him and ask him to do something like this, he says no. And even in like this case where he absolutely is willing to do it, he tells the guy not to go talking about it. Keep it relatively quiet if you would, please. He does this plenty of times. Why? Because anybody, anybody's excited about immediate relief, but Jesus knows that he has a larger mission to accomplish. See, the healing stories point beyond themselves to something bigger. So let's think about it like this. More so than just saying, look at Jesus, isn't he cool? The miracle stories of healing show us where we're going. They're like these little snapshots, these single focus images almost of the larger picture of what Jesus is doing in our lives. It's kind of like, I hope this makes sense, it's kind of like the difference between living in time and looking at a timeline. When you're living in time, like you know what's going on in the past, and mainly you're right here in the present, and you're walking into the future. You don't know how it works yet. But when you look at a timeline, you can see the whole thing from start to finish. It's almost like a singular event. And I think when we look at these healing stories, where somebody shows up broken, and then Jesus puts them back together, and by the end of the story, voila, they're fixed. I think we're looking at a compressed, shortened version of what he's going to do for all of us, of what the end game looks like for you and me. The things that are broken in us are going to be put back together. I think that's a big part of what's happening here, is that they show this process in quick form, where we're going if we trust in Jesus. And speaking of trusting in Jesus, that's the other thing I think they show us. Not just where we're going, but how to get there. Let me ask you a couple of questions, and these aren't rhetorical. You can tell me your answers loud, loud, loud if you feel so inclined. Uh, what was it that the centurion demonstrated that Jesus found so amazing? Faith. And uh, what title did both the centurion and the leper use when they spoke to Jesus? Lord. Well, now that's interesting. 
Now that's kind of, well, okay, hold on. Maybe there's something there to that. And not only that, there's one more detail in the text I want to draw your attention to. This is the part that put me a little bit like, what's going on here when I was wrestling with this text in the past few weeks? Look at the last verse. Kind of feels out of place a little bit. Verse 17 said, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, wait a second, that's Isaiah 53. That's one of the most popular chapters in the Old Testament. Flip back to me. We read it earlier. Isaiah read it. But let me read a couple of verses around this. This is from Isaiah 53. So let me read this verse that Matthew says is fulfilled in context of what's going on in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. You can follow along on the screens if you're not there. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wait a sec. These verses are about Jesus being our Savior. These verses are about Jesus' death on our behalf, in our place, about how he went before us and paid the penalty we deserved, about how he took into himself the punishment that you and I were owed because of our rebellion, because of the fact that we've looked at God and said, no, thanks, I'd rather do things my way. That's what these verses are about. What does this all mean? You know, in Matthew, there's 10 miraculous healing stories. Before the time Jesus first says, I'm here to die on a cross, and after he says, I'm here to die on a cross, there's only one more. Are y'all following me? Can you see how some of these pieces get put back together? I think what Matthew's trying to communicate to us, what God put in his mind to communicate to us, is that Jesus brings healing that starts now and will be completed in eternity. And the way to experience this healing is to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior who died in your place and as your Lord who tells you how to live your life. That's what I think is going on here. Yeah, what Jesus does for these bodies here in Matthew chapter 8 is a little bit of a picture for us. It points toward what he will do for our entire being, body, soul, and spirit, now and forevermore, if we just trust him. So what about you? Just because you can't see his face, just because you can't physically feel his touch, just because he's not here standing in front of you in the room, doesn't mean his love and his power are ineffective or far away or inaccessible to you. These are the first times in Matthew's gospel when an individual is healed. First personal miracle story in the gospel. And I think Matthew does this on purpose because after this long body of teaching where Jesus is just talking, he just wants to make sure we're still paying attention. He just wants to make sure we're still fully engaged. He just wants to make sure that we're not going, yeah, it's a bunch of ideas and stuff for somebody else, but I'm not sure about me. This is almost like one of those paintings at the museum that has the wandering eye, like wherever you go, it's just looking at you. It freaked me out when I was a kid. It's like God says through Matthew's pen, what about you? Because whoever you are, Jesus is willing and able to make you whole. Now, you ever notice that sometimes people believe some weird stuff, some crazy things? <laughs> the examples are easy, you know, like the earth is flat. Or, you know, like you step on the crack, you're going to break your mama's back, like that kind of stuff, you know. Or here's another one. I probably, like, I don't imagine that if I stare at the sun, it'll burn my retinas. You know, there are people who believe these things. Or I got a buddy of mine who, I work with him at the college. He's a professor, a smart dude. But, like, he spent a decent portion of his life believing that the way you get chicken pox is from coming into contact with chickens. 
<laughs> like not just when he was a kid, but yeah, like well into and past the part where you're like, you should probably know better, man. He's like, no, I actually believe this. And he said, you know, sometimes our goofy, he also uh, uh, is a person who won't step on cracks, but you know, sometimes our goofy beliefs linger a bit. And he says still to this day, he's never had chicken pox. So still, if he ever finds himself around a chicken, he's like, man, I'm just going to walk over here just to be safe. Because sometimes the stuff we believe, even if we know it's not quite true, it just kind of lingers a little bit. There's this guy, Michael Shermer, who runs his own foundation. It's called the Skeptic Society. He has a magazine called Skeptic Magazine. He gave a TED Talk back in 2006 called Why People Believe Strange Things. And he explained here, he argued here that why we believe weird things is because when we're looking out at the world, we kind of only pay attention to what confirms what we think. And we ignore the things that kind of work against it. So take the earth is flat. How could people believe this? Well, I'm looking at the edge of it. What are you looking at? Clearly there's an edge. Well, never mind the fact that when you go past that edge, you don't fall off. Yeah, but look, there's the edge of it. We just, we know it's got to be flat because of what we're seeing. So we ignore what like doesn't, doesn't confirm what we're saying. And we only pay attention to what does. So here's another crazy one for you. I can't believe people believe this. This is so weird. Sometimes people actually believe that church is for people who already have it all together. Isn't that weird? Isn't that bizarre? And yet this one lingers, man. It lingers. And I'm not sure how to explain it. I'm not sure if it's possible to explain it at all. But I do know that many of us tragically feel this way when we walk into the place. And even after we know in our heads that this isn't true, we still have those moments where we look around and we think, man, like, I'm not sure if I belong here. I'm looking around at all these people, and it just kind of looks like they have it all together. So we all come here, and we act like things are good. You know, we put our perfect church faces on. Okay, got to get ready. Got to get in church mode, you know. Everybody smile. Sit up straight. Please speak to one another respectfully. And so we put on the faces. We come into a place like this, and then we look around, and we see the things that confirm our false conception. The church is for people who already have it all together. We assume that everybody around us is doing great, and we also seem to assume that they walked in the door the first time that way. And we find ourselves just looking around going, I don't think this is for me. And I don't know if it means you'd leave. More likely, it probably means you'd come, but you'd disengage. I'll come here for you or my wife or husband or family or whatever. I'll come and show up, but I'm not one of these people who's ever going to be fully committed, who's ever going to be holy. Church is for people who are not like me. Can we just acknowledge once and for all that Matthew 8 debunks this persistent myth as thoroughly as possible? Just, let's just take Roe once more. Jesus is the most important person in the story, no question. Let's just take Roe because you've got a leper who's wrong in every way. He's socially shameful. He's religiously an outcast. He's got a broken body. And then after a leper, you got a Gentile who's a good guy, but he's in the wrong group. Like he's got some great personal qualities, but there are limits to his power and he's in the wrong tribe. And then you got a woman who in that context is the wrong gender to be a religious all-star. And not only that, but she's not even doing her social duties. I mean, this is a first century laundry list of people who never find themselves in the center of religious respect. And yet where is Jesus but with them, reaching out a hand, dropping decrees like a king, taking all comers corrupted and broken and sending them away healed and restored. In other words, whoever you are, this is for you. Jesus doesn't care who you were in a former life, and he doesn't pack your bags every time you fail in the present. He is here, and he's looking straight at you. Those of you who mostly have it all together, and those of you who aren't even close, and he's saying, do you want me to make you whole again? Because I can, I'm willing and able. Do you believe me? 
want to leave you with one, one more image, and then we'll, we'll be done. My daughter Claire is in second grade, and she's loving it. It's been fun so far. And she came home on like the second or third day of class and said, what'd you do today, babe? And she said, I made a beautiful oops today. And I said, you made a what? <laughs> she said, a beautiful oops. I said, what is a beautiful oops? And she said, well, there's like this, you got this, it's like scrap paper. It's like paper that's cut wrong or useless, and people just think it's trash. But you take this paper that people just discard, and you actually make something beautiful out of it. And I said, well, sweetheart, thanks for giving me a conclusion to my sermon here in a couple weeks. <laughs> Because that is the gospel. That is Matthew 8. That is what Jesus does. You know, I haven't seen her beautiful oops yet because it's hanging on the wall at school. I can't wait till she brings it home. But I figure today I don't need hers because I'm looking at a bunch of beautiful oopses right now. Amen? Same thing when I see the mirror. Let me pray. Father God, thanks for being a healer. Jesus, thanks that this is a true story that can happen to us. We recognize, God, that our story may not be we reached out once and immediately put everything back together again. But we also know these people whose bodies were fixed eventually died. And that the healing you bring to them and to us, that their physical healing points to is deeper and richer and longer lasting. Help us to trust in you. There are a lot of people in our world who tell us we're really dumb for believing in Jesus these days. So hope these stories give us confidence that um, this is the only place to be with him, with you. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.